want to take a moment and check in about the guided meditation before we go on. And just to encourage people now for the second half of the class, part of what we're doing is taking some of the principles, the ideas that we've discussed and studied the first half, and then beginning to apply them to particular relationships. So I recommended that people take a look at the Sigalovada um, Sutta, Oops. a discourse the Buddha gave to a young man who was doing a traditional um, ritual, sort of offering water and I forget what else they offer in the six directions, north, south, east, west, above and below. And the Buddha said, well, if you really want to sort of help yourself in life, instead of doing this abstract ritual, let's uh, make each of those directions, you know, one category of relationships. So he talks about that. And so this is something you can look at, the full range of relationships that you have, everything from your relationship to your pets, relationship to your teachers and mentors and people who have who you give power to or have power over you, people who you have power over, partners, friends, parents, children. So all the different kinds of relationships we have, neutral people in our lives, our enemies. And and to look at, uh, hold, you know, as a possibility, this possibility of being free in relationship to them. So not just when we're actually there in front of them, connect, connecting directly with them, but whenever they come to mind, even if we're a thousand miles away, when they come to mind, we're relating with them. We're relating to who we take them to be right there in that moment. And just to be honest about moments of ice, things seem fixed, solid, heavy, difficult, and even, it may not even be sort of what we would consider a bad relationship, but the ice might be more that we're dependent on it. We need them to be who we imagine them to be. And then if that were to change, because even if we don't know it's changing or it isn't changing right now, but just that I'm dependent on my wife being this way, like having respect for me, and maybe she has respect for me. But my dependence is the ice. Me needing her to see me a particular way. That's like ice. And just to see how we can become more and more free in any relationship we might have. And you might as well just pick up the ones that seem interesting to you, the relationships that seem interesting, and just get to know that range. And it's not like, this relationship is just ice or this relationship is always free, but they probably move along that spectrum, I'm guessing, although some may be more at this end of the spectrum and hopefully there are a few that are more at this other end. You know, we might have a really liberated ex relationship with the robins that visit our bird feeder, you know, because it's a, it can be a relatively uncomplicated relationship we maybe don't expect much back from the robins, maybe that they sing. 
But it's funny, even simple relationships like that, we can experience moments of real ice when, you know, they go south for the winter, you know, if they're not around anymore. Like, or whatever that can throw us off. Any thoughts or reflections about what we did tonight and how you might use that as you just work with the different relationships? Yeah, Charlene. And it's and it's so entangling because on the surface, culturally, and just the way we've sort of embodied the culture, it just seems skillful or appropriate for us to uh, want to take responsibility or assume that we should be responsible for people's happiness and unhappiness. And but when we relate to relationships from a dharma perspective, we realize that's suffering, that's stressful to be. To feel responsible for another's happiness is stressful. And, you know, we can always bring up, well, you know, I have a two-year-old or a two-month-year-old. I have to be responsible. And I think, clearly, that situation is the nth degree of this practice in terms of the difficulty. Like how to be with an infant as the primary caregiver and how to do that without ice forming. It's like uh, some of my Burmese teachers, they used to say to the young women, it's really important that you have the first stage of awakening before you get married and have children. (laughs) Because it's so difficult to be a primary caregiver of a young person where there's even if you know they're not your, even if it isn't your child, but there's such a deep instinct to want to protect appropriately. But how to do that without the mind becoming ice, the heart becoming ice, tight? Thanks for bringing that up. Anything else about this reflection? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, possibly. I think most of us would. 
Yeah, and that's that's like another example of that nth degree, right? Where it's that's a really challenging place. So if you didn't hear L, he's talking about an elderly parent with dementia and caring for that, and and about the sense of responsibility we have for not wanting our parent to suffer unnecessarily. But we have to appreciate that it's it's very appropriate for the heart to be touched by what we're hearing about our parent or what we're seeing, what we know is going on with our parent. So nobody is saying that the heart shouldn't be touched, shouldn't feel something deeply, strongly. The question we're really looking at or asking ourselves is, then what do we do with that very strong, maybe even intense feeling that we have when we hear about or see directly our parents struggling with dementia, maybe a lot of fears coming up for, for them, or just the basic issues of, you know, who's going to care for them and are they being taken care of and are they suffering unnecessarily? Is, are there things we could do to minimize the suffering? How do we figure all that out? So there's a lot of complications and just opening to that whole place, that complicated place, how much time should I be spending, how often should I go visit, what should I do when I visit? So all of that is going to touch the heart. The heart is going to be sensitive. And because this person's our parent, and because some of us in that situation might remember, like you, you suggested, Al, that they took care of me when I was completely vulnerable, when I was totally in need of their care. They were there for many years. I was the most important thing you know, for them, and they did as best they could in that situation. So that's all that history, and so that's why what we see, what we know, will really touch deeply in the heart. The heart will feel deeply what's going on. It will care. So that that's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be honest and honest about what we're feeling, honest about how the heart is being touched and moved, to be really clear and not afraid of what we're feeling. But all of that doesn't change the fact that their happiness or unhappiness is out of our hands. doesn't mean we shouldn't do things. But what we do has to sort of, it has to arise from our life, our particular capacity to respond other things that are going on. And it may or may not have an effect on their happiness, but we don't hold all the cards. And so to respond appropriately, we have to be we have to be liberated from feeling responsible. Meaning when I say feeling responsible is this idea that they can't suffer. That's just not acceptable. Well where does that idea come from? Like, how do we know they can't suffer or they shouldn't suffer? All we know is when they suffer, it touches my heart. That's what we know. When they suffer, when I know you're suffering, I feel it. I feel touched by it. And then I either can, just to be provocative, you know, spin out neurotically, feeling responsible, like I'm personally responsible for the fact that you're suffering. I should then personally hurt 
because you hurt. I should suffer because you're suffering. But you see, when we say it out loud like that, it doesn't make sense. Why should I personally suffer because you're suffering? Does that help you? If anything, if they were aware of it, they would not want us to suffer because they're suffering. But they, but they probably also appreciate that we care, that we're touched by their suffering. So this is the thing we have to learn. Like to get to the vapor stage, we have to be, learn how to be touched by all the joys and all the sorrows without suffering, suffering because we're afraid or suffering because we're attached. So how to really experience joy and really experience sorrow without suffering, without there being any friction with what we're feeling. How to feel without the friction. So that's kind of your job as a son, is how to feel and respond from that feeling without any tightness, without any getting tight around the intensity of that feeling you must be feeling. You know, because there's, same with, you know, a parent of a young child, and let's say the child's getting a bronchial infection, you know, and there's not probably very few things more intense than being around a little baby having a hard time breathing and not being able to do anything about it, or you've already done everything you can do about it, and you're just there. Or being around a parent with dementia, and just seeing, especially in the early stages, them being afraid of losing control, you know, to the degree that they're aware that they're losing control, or just seeing them not able to control the normal functions of life, the normal activities of life. It's a powerful letting go. But that's, you know, that, that's part of nature. We have to, if we're going to be alive, we have to include that. I mean, there, this plays out in all kinds of ordinary ways when, like, we seem to see from time to time a squirrel getting hit by a car, not getting killed immediately, but sort of stumbling away. Have you seen that happen? And there's nothing really to do in those moments. And you don't know if it's a matter of, minutes or if that squirrel is going to survive and live disabled, you know, for years or whatever. But it, the question is, what do we do with that image? In the Tibetan Buddhism, I might have mentioned this in the class, it's a very provocative image. And you have to use it skillfully, but just to sort of bring this to the nth degree, again, to see if our heart makes ice out of it or water or vapor is Imagine yourself as the primary caregiver of a child being swept away in a raging river and seeing that and knowing that there's nothing to do. Now, how do we hold that in our hearts? What would be the skillful way of relating to that? Now, it doesn't mean we can do this, you know, that, but it just means we aspire in this direction. And if we're lucky, we're in that middle place where there's enough space in the mind that we see the formation of ice and we recognize this isn't helping anyone. Like you're thinking about your parent and you're finding yourself getting really tight and you realize this isn't helping her or me. And other moments, and you feel your heart really open and caring and a, a real movement of love like, appreciating all of the care 
all of the love, all of the love you have for her, all the love you feel like you've received from her, and this willingness to respond in a way that makes sense in your life, to not hold back, but not to be afraid of things taking their natural course. And that there will be moments of loneliness and there will be moments of disorientation and there will be moments of real suffering. Dying, not always, but dying is often a difficult process for us humans. And um, I think we want to be careful of immediately labeling that as bad, that dying, the dying process is painful. Like why can't it just be the dying process is often painful? Why do we have to say that's unacceptable or bad? doesn't mean we don't want to minimize it, but we don't have to make it into a monster that, that is unacceptable. Because then basically we're saying we should all suffer because it's that way. Yeah, and that's really the essence of the Course. You know, relating wisely means the heart is wide open and sensitive and being touched and being impacted in a sense, being moved, maybe it's a better word, by everything, by all of our relationships, all of the interactions, whether they're in our mind or actually the person, people are in front of us. So not to be afraid of the heart being touched and moved, but having wisdom, gaining wisdom little by little, that to trust the movement of the heart, the movement of feeling. Feeling isn't feelings aren't bad or good. Feelings are just feelings, they're nature. And the question is what is the mind's tendency to do with feelings, the feelings that we feel? Can we just let them move or do we out of habit constrict when we have strong, pleasant or unpleasant feeling, because we can just let feeling move. So I want to talk a little bit more about intimacy. It'd be interesting if you, just before I go on, if you haven't read that sutta, uh, it'd be interesting maybe in the small groups to talk about whether it seemed dated or how you might update what the Buddha said some 2,500 years ago in terms of how to how He was really talking about the cycle of giving and receiving for each category of relationships, like with a teacher, with a parent, with a spouse, with a servant or a worker, somebody you have power over, and um, with a friend. And like what... What is that cycle of giving and receiving? How do you relate to them? How do you let your heart be generous? And how do you allow yourself to receive? 
so that there's it has a integrity the relationship um it's the only sutta in the on the website and it's called the siga lovada sutta siga lovada uh, sutta Sigalo is the name of the young man that the Buddha is talking to, or the young boy. And so the other thing to do with the different categories of relationships that we all have is to, you know, just to have a sense of experiences of intimacy or freedom. And intimacy is a good word. There's not a perfect word because intimacy implies that we're connected because it's relatively easy to have a lot of freedom abstractly with someone we don't actually have to relate to. You know, those poor people in this part of the world that I care deeply about. But we don't have any sense of responsibility or obligation or, you know. So it's easy to imagine that the love is pure. So we want to get a sense that intimacy means responding or connecting or engaging. That as the feeling, whatever the feeling might be, as the feeling is moving, there's no repression, there's no holding back. So, you know, as that's what feeling does, feeling, the movement of feeling in our heart, it triggers a response, whatever it might be. It might be tears, it might be getting on the phone, it might be contributing money, it might be, having a conversation or listening or so intimacy and freedom that's where we're going so as you look at the different relationships in your life whether you start with your any if you have a partner or a close friend and and then just why wouldn't we be interested in moments of real freedom real intimacy like how has that manifested how does that manifest in this particular relationship. Or if it doesn't, why doesn't it? What's in the way of the heart moving in that direction? Why is it more often, almost always, heavy? I mean, I don't know about you, but even in that short reflection we did during the guided meditation, the second, first person I brought to mind was my my wife, when, but the second person I brought to mind, it was just interesting. As I looked, you know, at that range, you know, I noticed, Something about wanting that, per, like um, being a little uh, dependent, wanting that person to like me. Like that was the ice I noticed. And really getting more honest about that dependency. And then when you see that there's ice, you can see the causes for the ice. You know, like being afraid of not being liked or not being respected, or being afraid of that person seeing me as I actually am. <laughs> and I can make peace with that, you know, and then things start to move. It's less icy and more like water. We, This is how we heal relationships. Sometimes, you know, it actually involves engaging or talking with the person, but it doesn't, we have to at least stay open to the possibility that our relationships can become more free, more like vapor, whether or not we actually have the opportunity to talk to the person or interact with the person, that maybe it's possible for every relationship to heal regardless 
of whether we actually are interacting with them. So the Buddha said something very provocative, as he often does. Some of you know about this sutta. There's a famous uh, person at the time of the Buddha, a great devotee of the Buddha, who had her deep state, you know, deep awakening herself. Her name was... um, just read it so I don't pronounce it right. Malika. So anyway, the way the story began, um, somebody came to the Buddha and he had lost his beloved little son. And he said to the Buddha, I have no desire to work or to eat. I keep going to the cemetery and crying out, where have you gone, my only little child? Where have you gone, my only little child? And the Buddha's response to him, that's the way it is, householder. That's the way it is. For sorrow, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are born from one who is dear, come springing from one who is dear. And the man couldn't believe what the Buddha was saying. Who would ever think that sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are born from one who is dear, come springing from one who is dear? Happiness, joy are born from one who is dear, come springing from one who is dear. And see, that not that exactly what's going on in my, our minds? It's like that you can just imagine, because we've all experienced loss to some degree. What we're doing is we're imagining the joy we got from that person. We're not actually honest about the the pain of loss that's moving right now in our heart. We're, our mind is fixing, this is the eyes, on like that person, my love for that person, my relationship with that person was a cause for joy. And we're fixing there and we're not being honest with the pain. So he left. He got up from his seat and left. And he talked to some other people, told them what the Buddha said, and they said, no, no, you're right, the Buddha's wrong. And anyway, it got around in the town. People showed up basically not believing what the Buddha said. All the way up to the king and queen. And the queen is this woman, Malika. And uh, the king heard it too. And the king, knowing that his wife was a great devotee of the Buddha, a great student of the Buddha, um, said to her what he had heard the Buddha had said. And the queen said, well, if he said it, it's true, you know. And then he just kind of goes on a little rant, like, you always say whatever he says is true. You know, get out of my sight, basically. (laughs) So she asked one of her trusted advisors to go check with the Buddha to make sure that he actually said that. And he did. And, uh, And the Buddha kind of not only said, yes, that's exactly what I said, and then gave him some examples, you know, just basically similar examples of a person losing a spouse or a parent losing a child or a brother losing a sister and the same sort of thing, how that leads to the very obvious experience of pain when loss is painful. That's just a basic fact. Loss is painful. So the advisor reports back to the queen. So then the queen, you know, being skillful, goes to see her husband, the king, and says, honey, or something like that, you know, (laughs) our dear princess here, you know, if she were to die, 
you know, how would you feel? How about me, if I were to die? How about your son, if he were to die? And he, uh, King's honest, you know, and says, well, I'd be pretty distressed. And basically walks him through the very, the reality that when we're, when the mind is attached, when we think that these relationships are a source of happiness, like the idea or the, like that's the purpose of my love for you is to get something called happiness the safety of your love of me or the safety of my interaction with you, then it's not good or bad. The Buddha's not saying that's bad. He's just saying then when loss comes, it will hurt. When there's attachment, then loss hurts. Now, it's so easy to hear this and think, okay, so then we should not have any Attachment. Well, in a sense, that's true. But maybe in a deeper way, it's like learning to be okay with the pain of loss. Like, what what would that be like? So we get that. Oh yeah, it's like the parent. Like just to go to the nth degree, it's like Al brought up with an aging parent with dementia, or those of you with young children, or those of you who are having involved in really healthy, happy intimate relationships with a friend or partner, and then imagining or actually experiencing some threat to that, you know, the child being sick, the parent aging, dying, the relationship on unsteady ground. And we sense, we directly feel that fear, that pain of loss or the, the potential of loss, the threat of loss. So the question is, maybe if we're not surprised, oh yeah, like of course. This is, so what am I going to do with that pain? Not, oh that pain shouldn't be there, how do I get rid of that pain? But well, what do I do with that pain? What's the skillful way to relate to that pain? Oh, this is what it means to care a lot. This is how it feels to care. This is what it feels like to imagine the person not being there. So the question is, should we, is it wrong to look at this kind of pain? Or is it healthy and enlivening and liberating? Because if we're going to, especially as lay people, if we're going to live in this world of relationships, this world of relating, this world of intimacy, then are we willing to take it all, you know, to take what comes with it? Or are we demanding that, oh yeah, we'll have intimate relationships, close relationships, but we don't want the powerful feelings that come with relationships. There's a couple poems. There's a wonderful collection of poems. Maybe you've seen this book, Risking Everything. There's a poem by Juan Ramon Jimenez, I think is how you pronounce it. I unpeddled you. I unpeddled you like a rose to see your soul, and I didn't see it. But everything around, horizons of lands and 
and of seas, everything out to the infinite was filled with a fragrance, enormous and alive. So I think this says something like, uh, again, just to use words, but the experience itself is what's liberating. But to the degree we know that our child or we know that our parent or we know that our loved one is this movement of nature, that there isn't our child in there like we imagine it or our parent in there or our partner or friend in there. It's like not finding the soul. But the the intimacy, the not being afraid of the movement of feeling, of being in relationship or caring, that's enormous, as this poet says, and alive, filled with the fragrance, enormous and alive. In one of the Buddhist texts, Dogen, one of the great Buddhist saints uh, who brought uh, Zen Buddhism, Chan Buddhism to Japan back I think in the 13th century. He said um, in one of his famous teachings, says, knowing self is forgetting self. Forgetting self is to be enlightened with all things or intimate with all things. So when we are in ice, in the stage of ice, it's like me needing you or you needing me or something, we make the relationship a something. And then when that inevitably changes, as it you know expresses its nature to move, to change, then whatever was built upon that solidity comes crashing down. And we feel quite hurt and betrayed because we didn't think it was going to be that way or should be that way. There's another poem, To Have Without Holding, Marge Piercy. Learning to love differently is hard. Love with the hands wide open. Love with the doors banging on their hinges, the cupboard cupboard unlocked, the wind roaring and whimpering in the rooms, rustling the sheets and snapping the blinds, that whack like rubber bands in an open palm. It hurts to love wide open stretching the muscles that feel as if they are made of wet plaster, then of blunt knives, then of sharp knives. It hurts to thwart the reflexes of grab, of clutch, to love and to let go again and again. It pesters to remember the lover who is not in the bed, to hold back what is owed to the work that gutters like a candle in a a cave without air, to love consciously, conscientiously, concretely, constructively. I can't do it, you say, it's killing me. But you thrive, you glow, on the street like a neon raspberry. You float and sail, a helium balloon, bright bachelor's button blue and bobbing on the cold and hot winds of our breath. As we make and unmake and passionate I actually looked these words up to get the pronunciation right, but it's not my skill. Let's see. Uh, uh, Diastole and systole, the rhythm of our unbound bonding. 
to have and to not hold, to love with minimized malice, hunger and anger, moment by moment balance. I think that's such a beautiful expression of moving into the unknown because vapor, that freedom in relationship is always, or what we call intimacy, is always groundless. It's not something we can own or count on even. It's exactly the not counting on it or the not owning it that is that freedom. Like, And maybe you have this experience sometimes with your friends or your partners, children, parents, you know, where you're there with them or bringing them to mind. And you look across and you really, instead of seeing the person, you see what's unknown or a mystery or like, who the hell are you? <laughs> or what are you? Have you had that experience where it's like the previous, the sort of established preconceptions, ideas you have about the person just somehow aren't landing or don't make sense or for whatever reason aren't fixing things in the way that in the past have fixed things. And you know you're in, you know you're close when there's just a sliver, at least a fear there, like, of the unknown. You don't really know what this is. And you could have it any moment. I mean, it could happen here. It's like in those ordinary, common moments of feeling a little self-consciousness when you're relating to somebody. It's very interesting what we do with self-consciousness. The sort of reflex when we're feeling a little self-conscious, like when you're talking about self-consciousness in front of a group of people. <laughs> or, you know, when you're giving a public talk and then all of a sudden you realize there are actually people who are listening to me. <laughs> and it's just really interesting to observe, this is like a homework assignment, what you do with self-consciousness. Like all the ways we can creatively make eyes out of self the, feeling of it's just a feeling but we have so many ways unskillful ways of making eyes when we feel self-conscious like dismissing the importance of the relationship like like i want to feel safe so i'm going to distance myself of course in many different kinds of ways in order to manage the unpleasant feeling of self-consciousness or you know for those of us who are dharma practitioners we don't think we should be feeling self-conscious. You know, so we'll use the sort of wisdom emptiness move like, you know, it's just a feeling, which is sort of like suppressing the unpleasantness of the self-consciousness because it shouldn't be there, right? Because it isn't personal. I know it isn't personal. So we kind of pretend that it doesn't hurt, that the self-consciousness doesn't hurt. So it's just really interesting like how we can be intimate and care about the un, the unpleasantness of that self-consciousness. And to, like, part of that free movement of vapor is to let that feeling move, like to let the sense of self, it's just the sense, get really small or lonely or needy or whatever it might be. Because wisdom knows that things just keep moving. It's not a final definition of who I or anybody is. 
So that's why we can trust the unpleasantness of self-consciousness. If I think, which is what we normally think, that the self-consciousness is defining me, then of course I'm going to be frightened of it and I'm going to struggle against it, which just, of course, confirms it, right? If I have to fight self-consciousness like the sense I'm not good enough or whatever is driving the self-consciousness, well, of course, if I knew I was good enough, I wouldn't have to resist that. But because I think it might be true, I have to fight it. So it just, it's so self-defeating in any case. So we, you know, but we learn, you know, we, we become an ice cube again and again and again, and we learn like, okay, that hurts. That doesn't work. I didn't learn anything. Is there another way? Could it possibly be the way to trust that feeling, you know, of being icy? One of the tricky places is... uh, we can get confused um, between, I mentioned, I think, this last week, between the intensity we have in relationship, because intensity, like really wanting somebody to love me, or, you know, all the strong feelings we have in relationship to another person, really caring about your mom, not wanting her to suffer, The intensity, there is some mundane experience of liberation there because when I'm really involved in that drama, everything else drops away and there's some sense of being free. Like, <coughs> And because the drama is so engaging, we don't notice how stressful it is. The attachment is stressful. But we're not seeing the attachment we're feeling, we're kind of involved in how we're going to, what we should do, how we can fix this or get this person to do what we want. So looking at the places in our relationships, you know, all the different relationships where there's where the mind gravitates towards intensity. And um, how intensity, how we equate often intimacy or freedom with intensity, as opposed to freedom that is less flashy. And it's in a way, it's better to look in those more ordinary moments, because what we learn might be more trustworthy and then able to generalize into places that are more intense, like a parent who's dying or has Alzheimer's or a child or whatever it might be, a new relationship, falling in love. Like how to like really understand what intimacy is. And it, it might be useful to experiment, uh, like for example, in our small groups next week, like what, what are your actual experiences of intimacy? just ordinary intimacy that's trustworthy, like you have some sense 
that that moment, those moments of relating, there was a lot of freedom there. The mind wasn't fixed there. And then distilling that experience of freedom. So what would that way of being, that way of relating look like in this other relationship where there tends to be stronger feelings moving? How would the principles of that experience of freedom, what would that look like over here? You know, like an example might be my relationship with my cat, Sumi. And uh, a lot of the time, the quality of play and engagement is really free. I'm not that disappointed if she ignores me. <clears throat> and, uh, and we have, it seems, you know, a playful relationship. And uh, like we... Uh, yeah, like we know how to communicate. That it's in order to play, you, you need to know how to communicate, like um, how to engage, so how to show up, but not take it too seriously. And uh, so, so what can I learn from that that might be useful, like when I'm in front of a group of people or talking to somebody that, you know, we have some history and some mutual responsibility toward each other. So it's more complicated. Excuse me. One of the articles that's in the um, um, the uh, resource list on our webpage, you might want to take a look at it if you haven't, Romantic Vision versus Everyday Disappointment. It's from uh, Shambhala Sun, one of the Buddhist themed magazines. Uh, Judith Simmer Brown is the person who wrote it. But she talks about this ideal. I think Joseph Campbell talks about this a lot too. That evidently formed this ideal of perfect love, romantic love, that basically was concocted by the human mind at some point. And Joseph Campbell and this woman also points to this time you know, about a thousand years ago in Europe where this idea like uh, our love for God, you know, in a Christian context can't be, at least in, you know, ordinary conditions, you know, it's not validated in a way or it's not consummated in a way because it's always abstract. And so then that sort of carried over into relationships with our partners. And so it people we get addict, addicted to the intensity, the thought, you know, the sort of uh, nth degree or perfection of love. And then the person, the actual interaction gets in the way because it never lives up to the idealization, the ideation of that relationship. The ideas of you know, the perfect love. And so it's nice, not just with our partners, but with our cats and with everybody, to really see the person, the being, as nature. Not special, not not special. Acting out their conditions. Like it's so easy to personify my cat's behavior as loving me. You know, she was on my lap while I was 
preparing the talk today at home. She, you know, she's always, she's a skittish cat. So I had to encourage her by picking her up and putting her on my lap. <laughs> you know, and sort of holding her, but not really holding her, because then she really freaks. So, and then she likes to sort of hide, so you put your hand there, and she sort of puts her face right in the hand, and then it gets nuzzling. And it's so easy to personify, like to tell the mind a story about what's going on in the relationship. Instead of just seeing it as this play of impersonal patterns, that it really is. And why, why can't that be enough? Like to look at the heart's disappointment. Like we, no, 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 we, like the mind likes it still. She really likes me or really needs me or whatever the story we might have about that particular relationship instead of seeing it as it is. And I find this really illuminating in my relationship with my wife too, just to more and more see it in myself and see it in her. And it, I find it liberating to see these impersonal qualities like the, the whole dance of how we are, how we're intimate, how we play, how we argue and fight, you know, the full range of relating, to just see these different forces at play and not to be confused by them, not to make them more or less than what they are. So I encourage you to take a look. It's only a few pages. And then the other article you might want to take a look at for next week is Tara Brock's article, Making Room for Desire where she just goes through blow by blow a retreat she was on. She was taking, uh, doing a retreat, not teaching a retreat, and, uh, and having one of those sort of, I call them vipassana romances, but basically within her own mind, falling in love, fantasizing about you know, the perfect relationship with somebody on retreat who she doesn't know the first thing about except having glanced at the person a couple times. And just the whole experience of desire and eventually getting to the place of seeing desire as a movement of nature. And I've had this experience, not so much in terms of a personal romance, but just desire, just that fountain of desire, that it's a, a natural movement. And it doesn't actually need an object. It can just be sort of a, a movement of nature through the body, through the heart and mind. Fear, desire, rage, all of these emotions become toxic and unskillful when the heart congeals, creates friction around them, identifies with them. But as movements, they're just life energy. They're just feeling. So we don't have a lot of time. But next week, we'll have small groups. But there are a few minutes if... uh, any people have any thoughts about what I've said tonight? Comments, questions that come to mind? Yeah, Wendy.
Well, one thing to keep in mind is that you can, we can experience real freedom in moments from that pain. But that doesn't mean in other moments the clarity, the balance of mind won't be there and we'll personalize the pain and we'll react to it and we'll become an ice cube. And so that's that's an important thing. We can remind ourselves when there is a lot of space and the whatever the impact, whatever the feeling in the heart is from that painful email, it's moving. And as movement, it's tolerable. Like we can really trust it and relax with it. But we know that we won't always be able to trust it and relax with it. And we might, in another moment, later tonight, another day, or whatever. And this is the thing, like, you know, we can get, this is the nice thing about sitting in the container of our formal meditation practice. When we get enough samadhi and the mind can come into balance, and we can open to those more painful places in life, those really raw, painful places in life, and have some real movement, and really honestly see that it is okay that this relationship is falling apart. This person really hates me. I actually want to hurt this other person. Like we can have space with all of that, not judge ourselves, not judge the world. And then later, out of the safety of our formal sitting time, we can be a deluded, suffering human being and doing stupid things, reacting in ways that are counterproductive, or hopefully little not as not quite as unskillful because maybe there's a little sense that this isn't what it appears to be as we're in that reactive place we might remember from the experience in the set when there really was a free movement when the heart really wasn't afraid of whatever it's now afraid of or whatever it now can't allow to be you know has to repress so I wouldn't work. I think the the way spiritual bypassing might come into that situation is to uh, misunderstand, you know, to misinterpret moments of freedom as if that freedom belongs to me. But that freedom is a natural arising when conditions are like this. So it's a momentary truth that nobody owns that moment of freedom. And so this is like a you know, and especially in the way the tradition talks about awakening or enlightenment, it's like, oh, you get it, and then it's yours, as if somebody owns the enlightenment. And then I've got it in my back pocket, and when anything bad comes, I hold out my enlightenment badge, back off. <laughs> Can't you see that I'm enlightened or free? But But the real awakening is to see that there are moments, there isn't a person who's awakened, there are moments of awakening or moments of freedom and there's moments of ice. And to make peace with that whole thing and to understand how it all works, like when there's ice, how come there's ice? And when there's freedom, how come there's freedom? That's liberating, to understand how it works. I have to leave it here, but more time next week for conversation. Thanks, everyone. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words.
in relationship here together. And with the whole world of all things. Feeling that tenderness, hardness, softness of the heart. Yes, this too. So, have a good week, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.